0: We are continuing in our sermon series on First Peter today. If you want to take your Bibles uh, or your cellular devices that have your Bibles on it, you can turn to First Peter chapter 2. As a review leading up to where we're at here, um, so what's going on in the book of First Peter is that First Peter is, is writing to a bunch of churches, a bunch of believers in what is now known as modern-day Turkey. And he is writing to them to uh, let them know that they are loved even in the midst of persecution. And so what he's doing is trying to re-narrate their story where they're feeling like, you know, I'm a Christian now, and there was all these promises of God and the forgiveness of sin, and yet my life is actually harder right now because I'm a Christian. Because what was ended up happening is that they were feeling exiled, they were feeling cast out of the society that they knew because they turned from, uh, this was mostly Gentiles, so mostly pagans, with some Jewish converts that turned to the Christian faith. And so their values and their mindsets, um, the way that they began to live their life, did not match what had previously been known about them in their culture. And so they're feeling like outcasts. They're feeling like they're exiled. And so Peter's coming in to re-narrate their story, to tie their story into the broader narrative of the scriptures and of God's story and say, yes. You might feel like you are exiled, and in some senses you are, but you are still chosen and precious and loved. And oftentimes we don't think about the idea of being exiled and loved, how they go hand in hand. And yet for the Christian, especially those in uh, uh, the first century, that was definitely the idea that they are both elect but also exiled. Then in the next section, Peter starts to unfold this idea of you have this inheritance. You have this new inheritance that will not spoil, that will not fade, that is not going to perish because of the new birth you experience through what is the Holy Spirit. And so you were born again into a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus gave you this living hope of the forgiveness of your sins and also a new life to be lived with God. And historically speaking, a lot of the Christians at this time were actually losing their inheritance because they were disconnecting themselves from their families or their families were kicking them out of the house, so to speak, because they weren't worshiping the family God, the pagan gods that they used to. And so there was kind of this manipulation of inheritance where it was like, unless you worship the God that our family worships, you can't be worshiping this Yahweh God or this Jesus God. You need to be worshiping our family pagan god that we've been worshiping for hundreds of years. If you don't do that, you're out. And so there was this persecution. The persecution that the early church in this era was going through wasn't necessarily physical. It was more so social. There was a huge social dynamic uh, that led into financial dynamics, and uh, they were becoming flustered. But Peter's writings say you have a new inheritance through the rebirth you experienced in Christ. And it is insanely better than any kind of money or trust fund or anything that you can have now. Insanely better. So much so is that the angels, these angelic, spiritual, cosmic beings, are actually trying to figure out what the heck is this redemption that God has offered to uh, the sons of Adam. What is this redemption that he has called um, those that used to be against him into his household through the blood of his son Jesus? That he takes traitors, That he takes those that are his enemies and through his love he actually transforms them into sons and daughters of his. What is this salvation that is being offered? Then Peter goes on to talk about holiness and how we shall be holy. The people of God shall be holy because God is holy. We shall be other. That there's going to be this otherness to us in our lives as we follow Christ that might indeed make you seem strange to the world around you. But there's this call to holiness, and here Peter's setting up something generally speaking about holiness that he's going to get into uh, at the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3 about Christian ethics and about how we are to live our lives as Christians even among a persecuted uh, society that wants to kind of... Uh, Trample on our necks and trample on our beliefs and everything like that. How are we supposed to live? But right now, Peter's just talking about how we are to be other, for God is other. We are to be holy uh, because God is holy. And so his holiness, as we are connected to him, flows to us. That it's not we're becoming self righteous and full of ourselves. It's that because we are in relationship with the living God, that his characteristics rub off on us. And that as we stay connected to him, we walk in that holiness. And one of the ways we stay connected to um, to the Lord and pursue holiness is to long for his word. Um, our family has been sick the past uh, week or two with different things coming out of one end or the other. And uh, we're on the mend now. But at one time, one of our daughters, Aubrey, uh, w- because she was throwing up, we couldn't give her milk. Milk's not the best thing to give to somebody that's throwing up. And yet that's the thing that she wanted and there was just this moment one time in the middle of the night where she's like the most pathetic, sweet cry of just saying like, Daddy, I want my milk. Like the thing that was just like, I don't care if this is going to make you throw up. I'll give you whatever you want because you're so, you're so precious right now. I didn't do that, obviously. But she was crying out for this milk that nourished her. And it was at that point that I reminded when Matt preached uh, two, three weeks ago about how the word says, let us cry out for the milk of the word, for pure spiritual milk, the word of God that nourishes us. And so there was this cool point with me where I got to see that literal crying out for milk that Aubrey was going through. And it was very sweet and it was very pathetic, like in a good way. Um, But that Peter says that we need to be longing for that word. We need to be longing for the written word. We need to be longing for the prophetic word. We need to be longing for the sacramental word. You have to remember that the church at this time didn't have the canon, the Bible, as we have it now, right? So a lot of the word came from the Old Testament, and it came from uh, prophetic utterances and speaking the word of Christ and the story of Christ orally to one another, and that was the word of God. So it is the written word, but it's also the spoken word, and it's also the sacramental word that we celebrate in communion and the other sacraments. You know, we always want to be maturing in our faith and in our minds and in our spirits, let us never take for granted how irreplaceable um, the Word of God is in our lives. A lot of times we can uh, almost take it for granted that we have this, and because we have it and we can access it at any time, we're like, I'll get to that. I'll get to that sometime. But as God's people, we want to be longing for the Word at all times. So that brings us to um, what is next here? Yes, that brings us to 1 Peter uh, 2. So let's read. 1 Peter 2. I did do uh, 1 Peter 2 last week, except I did it in the aspect uh, thematically. I didn't walk through the text. And I talked about the Old Testament history of the priests. that all of us that are followers of Jesus are part of the priesthood. And rather than having these dividing lines, we need to know that we are all valuable in the kingdom of God, in the nation of God, even though we have different roles. That there is no us versus them within the kingdom. There is we. That we as the people of God work together, we're being fit together as living stones in order to seek the Lord and to bless the world around us. Um, So let's read the text again. So this is 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and this is from Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, from the Psalms, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, one of the images we have in uh, the scriptures, uh, the living stone image, that is both applied to Christ as the living stone and to us as living stones. Does anybody know what this is on the screen? Stones? Anything else? Look closely. Look closely. Do you say bread? Grain? You're all wrong. Rotten orange peels? Yeah. Mushrooms was another guess. Okay, so this is a succulent plant that is hidden. If you can see, these are rocks, obviously, over here. But do you see these kind of weird things that kind of look like rocks, but they're not rocks? So that's a succulent plant uh, in the ice plant family. Known as lithops, or lithopes. I'm going to say lithops. I don't know if that's correct, though. Lithops. Um, they are native to uh, sections of South Africa, but they can be found anywhere nowadays um, because they're kind of a novelty item. Um, does anybody own one of these? I'm just wondering. Some, there's gardeners. And, do you own one? No, okay. I just wonder. Um, so this is what, also what they look like. So guess what the other name of lithops is? Think in according to the text we just read. Living stones. These are called living stones. Because, you know, they're, they're living, they're alive, but they're made to look like stones in order to kind of blend in with the stuff around them so that they don't get um, eaten up by birds, other varmints, or anything like this. So the metaphor of Jesus as a living stone and his followers of our living stone was in the text today as we read. And uh, that idea of living stones is going to come back a couple times, but um, I want to kind of capitalize on the momentum from last week when we talked a lot about the communal nature of the priesthood and what it means for us to be living stones fit together and not to be isolated from one another. So we're going we're gonna to listen to a song, and we do this at Cornerstone, you know, four times a year. Um, I always give the same kind of uh, speech about when we listen to songs especially this song, you're probably not going to like. The point of it isn't that you like it or not, okay? Reminder, we don't just listen to things that we like. But I do want you to listen to the lyrics. There were lyric sheets that should have been as you got a bulletin. If you want to share those with your neighbors, we're going to talk about this song just for two minutes. And what I want you to think about is there's a ton of biblical and metaphorical references to the communal nature or of the church, and uh, how a lot of times we kind of want to isolate ourselves, but we're meant to be together. I want you to uh, think of one f- picture or one line of the song that kind of stood out to you to share with your neighbor. Um, m- my girls hate this song, uh, my six- and my eight-year-old, because it's a screamy song. I'm telling you, you probably will not like this. I love it. It's great. Um, uh, the, the, the content of it and also the, the, the passion of it, and Gene's going to keep it at a lower level but you'll still be able to get the, the angst in it. Um, and think of my, my, my girls say, like, Dad, why doesn't he learn how to sing? Because um, it's, it's a band called Me Without You, which is a band from Philadelphia. It's a Christian band, um, but it's not, um, you know, Chris Tomlin, so to speak. Uh, so we're going to listen to this song and uh, actually listen and read the words so you can talk with your neighbor about what communal element Stood out with you to you about uh, about the song. Uh, Gene, is the is the audio okay? Let's see. Let's see if this works. I haven't done it this way before. So if you ever see me driving through Lebanon yelling in my van, I'm probably singing that song. I'm not yelling at my kids. So I want you to think about what's something that stood out either in the lyrics, uh, well, in the lyrics um, about the song, about the communal nature of what uh, the artist was kind of portraying. Um, I'm going to share one of my reflections at the end. Uh, My reflection to share with you is just that even that first line, like why, why burn poor and lonely? A lot of times um i we can be dealing with stuff internally and there's this kind of like barrier um of vulnerability that i need to get over like even with naomi like something might be eating at me and i'm really good we're really good at hiding that kind of stuff and like i'm kind of like keeping it all in and yet i know i should talk to naomi about it but i don't but then as soon as i do there's kind of this release where even though um, the situation's not necessarily um, over or dealt with, that there's this sharing and this vulnerability that allows community into it where I'm not bearing the load so much myself. And Naomi gives me perspective, and Naomi gives me um, you know, a, a voice outside of myself and eyes outside of myself to help see that situation. But it's really easy to be isolated, especially when we're going through tough times, rather than to uh, be open with those around us. And, again, we don't have to be, you know, uh, transparent with every single person in the world. But all of us, to some degree, have some kind of relationship that we can share those things. But we've got to get over that hurdle, right? And say, so, yeah, I, I kind of have this thing that's, that's burning inside of me that I need to share. And it's not necessarily to uh, confess it in order to berate it. It's more so to be able to release it, you know, because a lot of times I want to say, well, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to make it a bigger deal than it is. And yet it grows into a bigger deal because I'm not actually talking about it with my wife or with my friends or with uh, those around me that I can do that. So that's my observation. That line makes me think of that. So you have two minutes. Turn to one or two people around you. What's a lyric or something uh, in the communal nature uh, of the song that stood out to you? Go ahead. Okay, so let's turn back into our scripture and uh, walk through these couple passages. Let's look at the first two verses, verses four and five first. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So here, one of the big points of the book, is, of the letter, is that Peter is trying to tie the identity of the Christian believer to the identity of Christ. So he's being very explicit, saying that um, the living stone, Jesus, was what? He was rejected by men, but he was precious to God. The living stone was rejected by men, precious to God. You as living stones, so he doesn't say this uh, explicitly right here, but it's implicit, that you are experiencing this rejection from man, from society, And yet you need to know that you are precious in the sight of God. That just as Christ suffered, because you are part of Christ and Christ is part of you, there's this expectation that we can have, rightfully so, that we will also suffer to some degree. Especially because of our faith. Especially because of making this audacious claim that we believe that a dead man came back to life and that he ascended into the sky and is now in heaven somewhere. And that he's Lord of all. You know? That's a pretty bold claim. I mean, there was one thing there, but even now that's a pretty bold claim. But Peter is, again, trying to tie this identity of who Christ is to the identity of who the people are. Because their identity is found in him. So they can expect that both the suffering, but also the honor from God is going to come to them. So one of the few um, active verbs that we see in, uh, in these verses here is the idea to offer spiritual sacrifices. And we could take um, a whole sermon series to go through the scriptures and ask, what does it mean to offer a spiritual sacrifice? Uh, but, but here are three things to keep into consideration from the book of Hebrews. When the book of Hebrews talks about what does it mean to offer a spiritual sacrifice, it says these three things. That we openly profess God, that we do good, and that we share with others. These are spiritual sacrifices. These are what we offer to God in praise and in glory. To openly profess God, it's the fruit of our lips, the praise that is on our mouth, not just in song when we gather here, but also other places, you know, when we're out talking with people, um, when we're, we're not necessarily hiding who we are, but that we are a believer. And that can be really hard, especially in this day and age, just like it was then, but in a different way, because the label of Christian can mean so many things, right, in the society. It probably means so many things to you, that a Christian isn't just a follower of Jesus. A Christian might be um, a self-righteous person or a bigot or um, somebody that's really kind or somebody that really loves uh, their, their neighbors, You know, there's both positive and negative connotations to the word Christian in our society. And yet we still want to openly profess God, that God is the God of the universe, that Jesus is the Lord of all, that through him there's this forgiveness of sins, and through his life, death, and resurrection, and that he actually sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us to help us be recreated and reborn to know more about his ways and to live in the way that he actually wants us to live, and that We're not going to see the perfection of that right now. That there's going to be um, not seeing through the glass dimly at some point. That there's going to be the the full fullness of full glory that's going to be on the earth and the new uh, creation of it. But these are three things to um, think about when we offer spiritual sacrifice. Openly profess God, do good, don't do ill, don't do harm, and share with others. So there's kind of a practicality, there's a verbal, and there's also just this active action that is going on that we're trying to do good to one another, and that is a spiritual sacrifice. Now, today, in, you know, 21st century America, are we in the 21st century? Yeah. Um, That when we think of sacrifices, we don't have any kind of visceral reality of animal sacrifices. Back then they would have had that visceral reality of animal sacrifices. And that's one of the reasons that Peter is using the word spiritual. He's saying that there's no longer, whether you are a converted Jew or a Gentile who would offer animals as sacrifice in your religion, there's no longer the need for that anymore. Because Jesus offered himself once and for all, and it wasn't just uh, a sacred symbolic act, but it was actually the spiritual reality that happened in the shedding of his blood and in the resurrection of his body. So you don't need to do that anymore. Now for us, we're like, okay, but for them, historically speaking, that would have been a natural pattern of their life. And so what Peter is saying is that you need to change the way that you think about worship And about offering sacrifices. And yeah, you're supposed to offer sacrifices, but they need to be spiritual in nature now. That we're not actually coming up here to the altar and uh, slaying a goat or a bull or anything like that. That the spiritual sacrifices we are to offer are completely different. They are professing um, God openly doing good and sharing with others just to start. And as Paul says in uh, Romans 12, ultimately our whole life is to be a living sacrifice to God that we offer ourselves um, to do his will because we realize that the love that he's poured out on us and what he's done for us, not in some kind of like um, we need to repay him because we can't repay him, but in the overflow of love. So we are living stones. Metaphorically, we are not limestones. We're not physical limestones. Um, we are a spiritual house, not a stone and mortar temple. And the sacrifices we are to offer are to be Spiritual are to be spiritual, not the physical sacrifices of animal sacrifice, or even probably a couple hundred years before human sacrifice next next verses verses uh, six and seven actually do let's do six, seven, and eight for it stands in scripture: behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter continues on the stone metaphor, and he draws this distinct conclusion that Christ, as the cornerstone, is going to affect you one way or another. That there is no third place, so to speak, in this way. That there is a following of him, or there is not a following of him. And so the believers, at this time, are being shamed because they are following Jesus. But Peter is encouraging him. He's like, yeah, you're being shamed. You're being guilt-tripped. You're being put down. But guess what? You are receiving honor from a different source that is ultimately higher than any kind of human praise that can come to you. And so we can feel that when somebody, you know, comes against us in our spirit or with their words. But Peter is saying you need to be encouraged because there's actually honor for you in being dishonored. You are being dishonored for your faith, and God is honoring you for that very thing. Yeah, your family and your would-be friends have abandoned you, and they are talking bad to you, but God is actually applauding you in this place because you are holding fast to the truth that has come to you. And it says in uh, verse 8, at the end of verse 8, it says, they stumble, so those that did not believe, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Um, I would read that because you can read that a couple different ways depending on your trajectory of theology that you came from. Um, I would read that not as, um, Matt, you are destined to disobey God and there's no hope for you. Or you are destined um, um, for for destruction, so to speak. Because at any point in our lives, we have the chance to repent and come to the living stone, come to the cornerstone. How I would read that is that as we choose not to, as somebody chooses, as we choose not to follow the cornerstone, the destiny of that choice, so we made the choice, is ultimately that we will stumble. It's not that we're destined that we're going to automatically stumble. It's that we choose, because we all have free will, and we all make choices in our lives, that that path of those two paths set before us, one that leads to life and one that leads to death, if we do choose that path that is not Christ's cornerstone, we will stumble because we are disobeying the word. And so it's not that you are necessarily predestined for, uh, for destruction or anything like that. It's the fact that y- you and your choice have, have uh, chosen a way, and in that way, the destiny is that you're going to stumble. You're going to trip over Christ, the cornerstone. Again, repentance is always right behind us, speaking to us, or even right in front of us, saying, turn to me. But Peter's not making any kind of qualms about it. It's either following the cornerstone or stumbling over the cornerstone. And so we need to be careful how we talk about that idea of um, uh, God's will and our free will, right? Don't blame God for your choices. Don't blame God for your choices. You have free will, God is sovereign. But don't allow the adage that God is in control to assume that everything that happens is God's doing. Don't let that say, well, this this is just God's doing, God's will. Yes, God is taking what man and woman and humanity have created for evil, and he's redeeming it and turning it for good. But there are things that happen that are not God's will. Otherwise, in the Lord's Prayer, this idea of may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as in heaven, it's just this religious catchphrase. Rather than this plea for God, increase your work here. This is yours, increase your work here. And rather than seeing it as an invitation to us, as we pray that and cry that out, that we are his priests and how can we co-labor with God in his will being done. We can't blame God and shift the blame to God for choices that we have made. And we have to be really careful when we do that, when other people make choices in their free will, and then we want to slap on, why is God doing this to me? God is there. He's with you in that spot. But we need to be really careful with our language and our heart posture towards blaming God. When Naomi and I were on the West Coast, we were part of a, um, a church internship. This was how, uh, 12, 12 years ago. Yes. Yeah, so, how long have we been married? Twelve. Okay, uh, twelve years. After the ten-year mark, I lose track um, of all my previous ten-year marriages. Um, yeah. So, twelve years ago, and uh, uh, I was with uh, our pastor at the time. Uh, uh, his name was His name was Derek, and we went out, and he would just do prayer walking and pray with people. And he came across uh, this gentleman, and this gentleman came down from Canada. We are from We were in Bellingham, Washington, so about an hour. He Came down from Canada, but uh, to be with a girl. Um, the girl, however, was married. Um, and it didn't work out. Um, and he's there, and he was, he was saying how he, um, like, you know, he knew Derek was a pastor, and he was like, uh, you know, I know God has a reason for this. I know that this is, you know, God is, you know, there's a reason God is doing this. And so after a minute or two, my my, my pastor just looks at him and he's just like, you know, you made made that choice to do something that you knew, and there was a question in that, you knew wasn't right about moving down to try to pursue a, a married woman and then it didn't turn out okay? And we might laugh and snicker at that a little bit, but there's other ways in our lives that we do that too that we make a little decision here or there, and then we want to blame God for, I know God's, I know God's doing this for a reason. Yeah, God might be trying to reveal to you, don't do that. You know, maybe there's a better way to live life and to seek um, healthy relationships than that. But oftentimes, we, self-included, can want to push blame and free choice, our own free will and free choices on God. So we want to be careful that we don't... Um, predestine everything that happens, uh, every bad thing that happens as to the will of God. And I know that's a tricky theological slope, um, but there's a lot of different tradition in that and a lot that the biblical text has to say. What I care about is that our hearts are considering our ways and considering God's ways and not blaming God for things that we did. Does everybody get that? We need to take responsibility for the things that we do, and God is in the midst of all of those places. Don't get me wrong in that. So, um... So again, what Peter is doing here, though, is he's making this distinction, is that you uh, believers are actually receiving honor, even though you're being dishonored. You're receiving um, uh, praise from God in some sense because of your faith, even though you're being ridiculed among the society. And you have to realize that there is a difference here, that there is those that have chosen and that have honored and believed in Christ the cornerstone, and then there's those who said no, and yet they're still going to encounter Christ the cornerstone, except he's going to be a stumbling block in their lives. And so there is this path of two ways here, and uh, you, church in Turkey, are being honored, and should see that as an honorable place, even though you're being persecuted, because God is honoring you, and the honor that we receive, God is far better than the honor that we receive from uh, uh, from humans, from humans. And then finally, verses nine and ten in your text. <clears throat> But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, right? But you, you know, it comes off, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, that called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter continues to um, try to connect the people to their identity in Christ because he's about to give some very specific examples of how uh, they should live a Christian gospel-centered ethic in their lives. But he wants to make sure that they're not doing this thing out of some kind of self-righteousness or some kind of self-made morality, but that what they're doing is because their identity is this in Christ, and so the outflow of that are these things. So over and over again, he's trying to uh, identify the people, and then out of that, he's going to be teaching them and suggesting the ethic that they need to follow in the world that they live in. So ethics and morality are incredibly important, but they need to be put in their proper place. Um, One commentator said, God expects his people to be holy, but they can find holiness only in relationship to him. This is the message of the whole scripture, that God desires to be in a relationship with human beings who would reciprocate his love. That would reciprocate his love. And so as we go and we proclaim the excellencies of God, as the text says, that he took us out of darkness and into light, that needs to be primarily an identity-based statement. It needs to be based out of our identity and not necessarily out of the things that we do, although they play uh, into it, right? So while there's a time and place for Christian ethics, we need to make sure that we are not attempting to win people to a Christian ethic and morality rather than to faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. It can be very easy for us to say, well, if you do this, then that means you're a Christian. Right? And so what ends up happening is that we can frustrate ourselves and we can waste time in our evangelism by asking a person who doesn't have faith in Christ to have a gospel ethic. You know, why would we do that? Without being reborn of God, without being in a cultivated relationship of Jesus, it doesn't make sense. Following and wrestling with the teachings of Christ are hard enough as a Christian. I think we can all be honest about that, you know, and thank God that there's forgiveness and grace and process and all of that. This isn't a guilt, uh, guilt trip or anything like that. It's, it's hard to follow, you know, take up your cross you know, lay down your life and follow me. That's not like a, woohoo! Is there joy in that? Absolutely. Is there a presence of God in that? Absolutely. Is there hope and love and faith in that? Absolutely. That doesn't mean that there's not suffering and hardship. Okay, But if it's hard enough for us as Christians, or for those of us that believe in Jesus, uh, why would we expect that someone who doesn't trust that God is for them, and doesn't believe in the good news to begin to even desire a Christian ethic. We can't get the ethic before the identity. Now, to contradict myself, that being said, as our light as Christians, as believers, shines before men and women, the hope is that they will see some kind of peculiar beauty in us, right? That the way that we live our lives and we address one another and we address our enemies and we address Um, uh, the media and the culture around us is different and it's peculiar and it might be weird and people might think that we're stupid but there's something there. What is going on there? So as that happens and people are intrigued, as they are interested in our ways, we always point back to Jesus as the way. As they start to question their own truth and they ask us what our truth is, we always point back to Jesus as the truth. And as they consider that maybe their life is missing something, we point to Jesus as life because Christ is the cornerstone. So do you get what I'm saying there? As we talk to people about Jesus, we want to make sure that we're not trying to win them over to an ethic rather than to win them over to Christ. And yeah, now that we're here, we've arrived, you're right. But now that we're here, now that we've been transferred from darkness to light, and that we know that God is actually for us, even some of the hard things he's about to say to us, and there's something that has been reborn inside of us, of this good news of the gospel, then we might actually be able to start to grasp some of his commands, some of his teachings, some of the way that that's going. But that's not going to happen outside of a life cultivated with him. So as we speak to others, we want to make sure that, oh, you need to stop, you need to stop drinking, sure. Sure. That might very well be the case. You need to stop doing drugs. Yep, that might very well be the case. You know, uh, your sexual activity on campus that you keep talking about, no. But am I trying to win that person to just change his sexual ethic or am I trying to have him understand the, the betterness, the bestness, the supremacy of the way of Christ by connecting him to the source point. And those are hard things, right? Because it'd be easy to do, it would be easy to do the quick fix, just change your behavior. And sometimes uh, that can actually, I've, I've, I mean, we have experiences that that might actually lead like, oh, you know what? I've started doing this and I feel like I'm not as, you know, whatever. I'm not as angry. And there might be somebody who's like, well, you know why? Because Jesus says, dun 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 But again, not to beat a dead horse. I just want to make sure it's sinking in. We want to win people to Christ as the cornerstone and not to uh, a morality or a Christian ethic. And that can be a lot harder rather than just saying, just change this. And then that involves a lot more time because just like the pagans had a way in 1 uh, in Peter that they were walking through stuff. They were used to a pattern of life that they lived in. Individually, the way they approached uh, their marriages, the way they approached their friends, the way they approached their culture and their leaders and their uh, employers and their slaves and their slave owners. But now something is different. You have actually been born again, Christian. But now because of this new identity, there's a new way to live. Let's, let's, let's walk that out as we get to know Christ more Let's walk that out together and be formed into his likeness more and more and more in the grace of God. So we want to make sure that we're going to Christ as the cornerstone and not just to uh, a Christian ethic. And then finally, the last thing, um, how it talks about, uh, what does it say in your uh, text? Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are whose people? God's. You are God's people. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. And we as a community need to remember that. That we can gather together and we can put on the church label of whatever else. But we need to remember that even in our community, God needs to be the center of that. We can have a community. You can have a great community outside of the church building. That doesn't mean that it's God's community. And so we need to make sure that we keep Christ and God as the cornerstone because we are his people. We want to be, a, a, if we want to be a Christian church, we can't remove Christ from our community. In the midst of that, of course, of course, we're not going to do that. But there's things that sometimes we forget to do, and we don't remember, and we don't set uh, our hearts and our minds on the idea that Christ is um, that that cornerstone of our community. So going back to the "Me Without You" song, the other reflection I'll give on that, um, <clears throat> at the end of at the end of the song, uh, it actually. Uh, kind of quotes from the Bible, Luke 7. Did anybody notice that? It's also in Matthew, I think. Um, and it's this idea that uh, Jesus is talking to the people and about the religious leaders of the day, about John the Baptist and about himself, and how the religious leaders, I'm just going to say the religious people at that time, were rejecting God's purpose for them. And he uses this probably a cultural, like uh, like a poem or a parable or something um, that has to do with selfish children saying that they did this and they did that and yet you didn't respond the way we wanted you to respond. Okay, that's how Luke 7 puts it. There are these selfish children that that did this and they're like, you know, we played the flute. Why didn't you people dance? We were mourning, we did this sad, dramatic play where you pick the apple and eat the apple and throw the apple away, and you didn't cry. There was kind of this selfish motivation of like, we're doing this, come on, aren't you infatuated with me? Because what was going on then is that um, John the Baptist came, uh, you know, in sackcloth and ashes, and people didn't want to respond to his uh, sadness, that his, his kind of uh, ministry of suffering. Jesus comes rejoicing and drinking and partying with his disciples, and feasting, and people didn't want to respond to that. What are you doing? And so no matter what, the religious people didn't want to see what was right in front of them. So what happens, though, in the song is that the artist turns it on its head. That he says, uh, you played the flute, and this is my interpretation, and it's subjective, I get that. You played the flute. I would say God played the flute, and no one was dancing. You sang a sad song, and none of us cried. As a community, as God's people, we always want to take our direction and our heart from the heart of the Father, right? Where, where he's like, we need to rejoice over this. No, I'm kind of in a mood. And that's hard sometimes to change your mind, right? In the moment, let's be honest, it is. But we can also appreciate the fact that if God is for us, And he knows the best. And if he's saying, this is actually a time to rejoice, we should rejoice. But it cuts both ways. If this is a time where we need to actually mourn because of what's going on, we need to enter into God's mourning. Because God both dances and God... And we as living stones want to follow that cornerstone. We don't want to be a body... The body of Christ that is ignoring all the signals that are coming from the head, which is Christ Jesus. And yeah, that's kind of philosophical and whatever, and the practicality of that needs to be fleshed out. But that is still a central truth, that it's the head that directs the body. You know, um, one, of the, one of the values we have uh, over the past five years of going from a planet to a rooted church was this idea that the church is not an end in itself. It is a means to the end, and Christ is the end. And so we can gather here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and we can do things during the week um, that are very Christianly and everything else, and those things are good. But is Christ our cornerstone? Is Christ our cornerstone as as an individual, and is Christ our cornerstone um, for us as a church? And if it's not, what is that cornerstone in our lives? You know, sometimes... If we are trying to win people to an ethic, is our actual cornerstone in our life that object? You know what I mean? The thing that I'm trying to win that person to, that's really the cornerstone in my life. And that cornerstone is ultimately going to crumble if it's not Jesus. So we want to be aware of that in our own lives. We are God's people, not just a people, we are God's people. We are a church, not just a church, we are Christ's church. And the ultimate uh, goal is not just to be a community, but it's to be a community centered around Christ, a church that uh, takes its lead from uh, the head that is Christ alone. Team, worship team, you guys can come back up. As we wrap up and head to communion, uh, a couple things as the teams come up here. One, there's going to be prayer after the service. If you need prayer, please come see Matt, myself, or Laura Borden We are also going to be praying for prison ministry. Is that correct, Laura? Are there any other specific prayer things like that that I need to announce besides that one? So if you would like to pray for the prayer ministry team, yeah, uh, please come down after front. If you need personal prayer for anything, uh, please also come down front. During communion, uh, we have two tables set up. We have the bread over here. We have the juice over here. You go rip and remember the life, death, and resurrection, the tangibility, the historicity of that, and the spiritual reality of that. And take it and go and you dip it into the juice, remembering his bloodshed for the forgiveness of your sins and partake of it. We will also have uh, two people that will be praying. Uh, who is praying today? Holly and Rodney. Great. Holly and Ro- Rodney will be uh, over there. If you need prayer for anything... Where you don't even know what you need prayer for, but you need prayer, go and they would, be, they would love to pray for you. So that will also be going on during communion. So um, as we remember this, as we remember that Christ is our cornerstone, um, I would like us to keep this image uh, and this verse in our mind, because we are living stones, okay? Remember, what was that plant called? The lithops that was called a living stone. So this is, this is uh, a living stone blooming. It's kind of weird too, but it's cool. Where this stone is blooming. Yeah, isn't that cool? That there's this thing that is there that is not seen. That has some kind of glory that will be revealed in it. So as we go to the table, remember that you are a living stone and keep these words in your spirit. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Think of 1 Peter, the people of 1 Peter. Beloved, we are God's children now, in the present, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And so as we share in the suffering and the dishonor and the shame that Christ did, not because, uh, we're not being dishonored because we're being self-righteous. We're not being dishonored because we made a choice that was wrong. But because if we're being dishonored or persecuted because of our faith, we're hoping that as we share in his suffering, we will also share in his resurrection. We will also share in that glory, right, that blooms out. And so let's take that and the love of God with us to the table as we continue in song and in worship. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Thank you for the hiddenness um, of your word in us. And uh, thank you for how you have good things for those that follow you, God. Help us to be a people that as we speak to those that are different than us, that have different ethics than us, different perspectives than us, Um, that we're ultimately trying to point people back to you and we're ultimately trying to understand and know you more to God. We confess that we don't have everything figured out. But we also confess that we believe that your life and your death and your resurrection change everything. And so help us to um, remember that and actually embody that. Thank you for your grace as you teach us how to live. Holy Spirit, cleanse us. Help us to embody gospel principles, not just to think about them, but to actually enact them in our lives. Help us to be people both of action and attitudes. Worship that both has us standing and bowing down and uh, crying out uh, in devotion to you, but a faith that also takes direction from you, Jesus Christ, as the head and goes and loves others around us, even if they're different than us. And we believe, God, I believe that ultimately that the best way that we can love somebody is by, um, helping them to, uh, be nourished on you and to flourish in who you have called them to be, God. So we ask you to do that work and we want to co-labor with you in that work, God. The world does not rest on our shoulders. Um, it does rest on yours. Uh, And yet we want to be part of that God and we want to receive that invitation. And so we've received the invitation to the table today, not just as people thinking about ourselves, but as people that are considering your greatness and vastness and also the world around us. Help us to hear you in screaming songs. Help us to hear you in uh, places where somebody outside of herself, even if they're an enemy, is actually saying truth. And we need to be hearing that because it's from you. Help us to consider a perspective other than our own, God. But God, also root us and ground us and tie us to the cornerstone. Tie us, God, to Christ Jesus, um, that we might experience both his uh, death, but also his resurrection, God. Thank you for being with us in all things. Uh, We pray this in your name. Amen.